Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Janine, to the podcast. Um, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Um, Janine Versi is a longtime friend and founder and is the co-founder and COO of Electra Health. Uh, welcome, Janine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah. So what, what people might not know on the podcast is that we've probably known each other since 2007 and yep. been around the world, uh, both in India and in Washington. And maybe you could tell folks a little bit about your background, it's such an interesting background coming from Google and, and, and public policy uh, in, in DC, and then moving into taking the plunge to, to founding a company. Yeah, thank you. It's definitely been an interesting and non-linear journey, I would say. I'm someone who came from a family of doctors and was not personally interested in pursuing medicine myself. I was a lover of history and social studies, and that's what I studied in undergrad. I was at Penn doing international relations and really loved that intersection of the social sciences with, with economics and politics. And so, you know, fast forward a number of years, I did a, you know, almost um, the <laughs> oftentimes UPenn students go immediately to Wall Street. And um, I did do that prior to the Great Recession and then left very quickly, moved to India to work on microfinance, which is where I got to meet Scott. And then fast forward a number of years, uh, was at Google in the early days when Google was just contemplating whether YouTube was ever going to be a monetizable product for them. Facebook was a startup. It was really early, early days in the internet 2.0 phase um, when Instagram didn't even exist. And then, um, you know, having grown up as one of three girls with two parents in medicine, I was always very interested in women's health, but I don't think I really connected the dots until I was headed to business school. I went to HBS after Google and was looking for that industry where I could have a lot of impact, but also get to be, you know, at a small, fast growing, fast paced environment. And ironically, even though I went from Google looking for a startup, I ended up taking a left turn into the Obama administration. Um, I got to work in the White House. I went back for two years full time because that was just a once in a lifetime opportunity, definitely connecting back to the policy passion of my undergrad days and said, you know, digital health will still be here when I kind of, you know, exit the, the Washington scene. And sure enough, the digital health scene had not only remained, but it had really exploded into a very vibrant and interesting kind of, you know, new consumer driven healthcare space. So um, I'll, you know, can tell you more about that founding journey, but maybe I'll pause because I feel like. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's so fascinating because it's something that that we definitely share and, you know, maybe um, what brought, brought us together in friendship was this sort of in interesting desire for both scale and impact. And I know in my own journey, thinking through these various incarnations of how do you have impact, but how do you also have it at scale and how do you have it on the pace that accords with the lifestyle that you want to lead and the trade-offs between these different um, organizations are different. Like you have 
Google, you have immense scale, but you have kind of this sclerotic, bureaucratic, big processing organization, right? Even though people think Google is, is heavily innovative, when you get inside the, the belly of the beast, it, it, things can sometimes move quite slowly. And, you know, maybe similarly to um, the scale and impact you can have in Washington, but then again, yes. you're dealing with public sector bureaucracy. Obviously, on the startup side, uh, you have sort of this ability to move quickly and be very uh, agile, but then at the same time, it's it's a slog to sort of build that those levels of scale. So maybe um, tell us a little bit about Electra Health and um, part of the journey there as well. Um, yeah. One of the amazing things with the fund, um, being able to put you and Alessandra together in the early I was going to get that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't so maybe worry, tell us I won't forget about that. Very important part of the story. Um, but just to comment, you know, I think people that, you know, occasionally seek me out or, you know, that I mentor or ask for advice, especially coming from business school, often are, you know, naming this conundrum of wanting to have an impact. And I often say that for the people that really are committed to making a difference in the lives of others, I think there are a few better places to go and spend some time than the government, whether that's state, local, federal. There is just no organization that has the scale of the federal government. And that was an extremely motivating and inspiring fact that was part of my daily existence in DC. The work that we did really mattered. And my colleagues were unbelievably impressive, talented folks, oftentimes, you know, masters and PhDs. And I think really did buck the stereotype that is often associated with folks working in government. Um, so, and, and honestly, no one hustles like somebody who's worked on a campaign. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people are looking for really bright, fast and, um, excellent generalists, I always think about people who work on campaigns. So, mm -hmm. The, you know, the pathway to Electra and just to share for the audience, Electra Health is a women's health company. We are on the mission, on a mission to smash the menopause taboo. And we believe that every woman should have access to evidence-based education, virtual care, and a safe and private community to enable her to thrive through the menopause journey and for the decades that follow. And unfortunately, given how universal this experience is and often takes a decade of a woman's life, it is a taboo topic. It's something that we often don't talk about. It's wrapped up in sexism, ageism, certainly racism for a lot of women of color. And women in menopause are in their, you know, that can happen at various ages, but often we think of those in their 40s and 50s and even 60s who are some of the most influential consumers they're certainly influential when it comes to healthcare spend for their families. They're the sandwich generation, and they're really important in the workforce. So lots to say on that topic, but my path to Electra was really informed by the work that I did. I was on the founding team of a company called CityBlock Health based in New York, an amazing company that cares for individuals with complex medical and social needs. They tend to be Medicare and Medicaid members. And so we're really talking about the individuals who lack access to care and services. And then often the costs associated with that are pretty enormous. And so we really need to think about how to improve the healthcare system for those who have the least access, but some of the greatest issues. Anyway, um, having spent an, uh, you know time at CityBlock, building the team, um, getting into the value-based care space, 
I realized that there was an opportunity in the women's health area that I had not been paying as much attention to. It just wasn't part of city blocks focus, but I was increasingly drawn to innovation in women's health specifically. And so I, you know, reached out to a couple of friends just to catch up. I was loosely thinking about next steps and Scott said, Hey, you know, there's someone that you have to meet. You have to have coffee with. You're both interested in women's health. And, um, it ended up being a coffee that ran over for hours with my now co-founder, Alessandra Henderson, who's an incredible human and part of the fund community before even I was. So Scott and Jenny and the whole fund community is really, we have a huge debt of gratitude to you for bringing us together and being essentially the beginning of our founding story. I still remember some of those whiteboard sessions in uh, the Flatiron in the, in the Techstars office where... <laughs> We were totally. all squatting over the summer. <laughs> Definitely. As you guys have explored this, um, what you call kind of a, a taboo uh, subject area that has historically not been talked about as much, what are the ways in which Electra is kind of bringing some of these topics to the surface or how are you, what do you think about kind of integration of hormonal education um, earlier into curricula or at, at what time should people be learning about these subjects? I love the question. I think the answer is from the start. It's something that, you know, we all know individuals experiencing menopause. Everybody knows has someone that they love in their lives and they might not know that it can be a really challenging time of transition. There are a lot of symptoms associated with menopause because there are estrogen receptors all over our bodies, our brains, our bones, our, you know, heart definitely your pelvic floor, your vaginal health. So much is tied up in this transition. It's really puberty in reverse. And so if we think it's it's important for people to be educated about their bodies and to understand what all of these milestones in you know, human and biological development entail, then I think it's important for menopause to be included. To put a finer point on it, one of our incredible teammates, um, she's a nurse by training. Her name is Laura Stratty, and she lives in Wisconsin. And after a career in nursing, reached out to Electra, which is actually how we've recruited some of the best folks that we work with, and was like, this is super interesting. I need this for my patients. And lo and behold, not too long later, we brought her onto the team, but she actually wrote a menopause guide for high schoolers and to her daughter's chagrin, her daughter is a high schooler. She brought it over to the health teacher and it was accepted and sort of encouraged. And so I applaud them for that. But I think we in general need to talk about these topics more and that's menopause, of course, but also women's health across the spectrum and individuals' health, mental health, holistic health, because the traditional sorting of healthcare into sort of organs and systems of the body is increasingly outmoded. It's not how we experience health and well-being. And, you know, I think COVID has made that disastrously clear for all of us. It's a pushback as well on the the kind of echo chambers of, of social media. And I think even just uh, ways in which, uh, you know, I lived in New York City in certain neighborhoods where there wasn't as much intergenerational um, conversation happening or conversation across different lines, different communities, different um, points of life. And so having these conversations earlier and across different spectra 
it seems like uh, you guys are doing a great service for bringing those conversations to the forefront. What do you think as far as in the public perception, like are there myths or are there things that you guys are pushing back to, to kind of change the narrative around things that are maybe commonly misunderstood? Yeah, it's a huge part of what we do. Um, speaking out and bringing evidence-based information to everybody. And one of the big developments for Electra over the past year has been increasingly working with employers and health plans, as well as, you know, we have our roots and our DNA really um, direct to consumer and having started with thousands of conversations with women individually in their homes pre-COVID where women were bringing their friends and we were bringing our medical experts and understanding there was something really powerful and magical about the learning that takes place there. And part of what we've done is to productize that and to make it part of the service that we offer with expertise that is trustworthy because Dr. Google is not the place to go. Google Google is you know amazing for many, many things, but for your education and to understand your options around managing your menopause care, I would not recommend it. But so in terms of some of the common myths, I would say that, you know, people often think menopause and they say, oh, you know, that's my mom. And if you're me, I hope my mom's not listening to this, you know, that's somebody who might be in their seventies. Um, and in fact, maybe still experiencing symptoms of menopause, but they probably went through that transition at something like late, mid to late forties. And menopause is a period of time, 12 months after your last period. So it's actually just a moment in time, but the menopause transition is many years long and can start in the forties. And some research indicates maybe even the late thirties, that's a big myth. People are sort of associate this with women who are decades older um, than they are in reality. And that also affects physician education. And these stereotypes are true in the delivery of healthcare. Unfortunately, menopause is a topic that is fairly complex because hormones um, are complex and they interact with different parts of the body. And so you do need a little bit of specialized education. And I know many, many physicians, I'm married to one, they don't always get that education in medical school or in residency. And so it's important that we help women be advocates for their own care. Um, this is 50% of the population. It is not a niche. And part of taking advantage, taking, being an advocate for their own care is understanding one, what to expect symptoms. There are like 34 symptoms that can potentially be associated with menopause. And many of them do have evidence-based treatments, whether that is you know, pharmacological, or if that is lifestyle and oriented around nutrition and sleep and taking a more focused approach to supplements and those that have been studied and have some evidence behind them. So um, all that is to say that there's a lot that people can do. And there is a myth that this is just something that women go through later on at some uncertain time, and they just need to grit their teeth and bear it. And that is false because for a lot of women, it can be a really devastating experience. And whether you're in the boardroom or you're someone that has, you know, struggled to get access to healthcare, you all, we all deserve high quality care, education, and community. 
And out of curiosity, like within the electric platform, are there ways in which you guys are actively working to engage men as well as women to kind of educate across the spectrum? Such a good question. So I will back up and just explain what Electra offers. We have built a full stack digital platform to help women navigate this journey with education, care, and community. And care really means two things. It's one, access to nurses who are trained in menopause, and it's really counseling and coaching, and also access to telemedicine specialists. So menopause providers who really have been taking care of thousands of menopausal women and understand how to treat the symptoms of menopause medically and clinically. And then we provide a lot of really rigorous hundreds of hours of MD created information and content. Um, And the community piece is really where um, the opportunity to work with allies comes in. And we do often refer to you know, women's health, it's more colloquial, but certainly hormonal health applies to everybody. And one of the recent ERG events we did with a partner had something like, I think 150 people signed up. And I believe that fully quarter were identified themselves as male and that it got rave reviews. I think we had a NPS of 74 following that. And you know, you think about a lunchtime webinar, it's not necessarily something that people are leaning into, but the engagement was really impressive. I think it, it feels like a novel topic, but also people do relate. They see maybe their partners or their friends or their bosses, or they recall family members' experiences. And and again, for some, it can be really significant. And for others, I think, you know, they're doing their part in understanding this is something that we as a society should not be whispering about. Um, It's a very normal, natural transition, and we should support people as they navigate the world in menopause and beyond. And speaking of of navigating, out of curiosity, as you, as you know, a founder of a healthcare company, kind of coming into this space that's highly regulated with, um, you know, HIPAA compliance and medical information, data, privacy, all these sort of topics at hand, you know, for those out there that may be aspiring to start a company in a market as big and exciting as healthcare, you know, what are some of the things that you've learned, um, been blindsided by, been, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly yeah, uh, over great. these last few years? Because um, I know it's it's no easy task to start a company, number one, and number two, especially in healthcare. Yes. And especially during a pandemic. <laughs> um, the trifecta. And then not, not to mention having twins as well. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it's been a busy few years, I'll say. Um, I, I think it's a really good question. I think that founder life gets, uh, you know, often glamorized or some of these stories are told with like really seriously rosy lenses. And, and I'm all for that. I think, you know, you have to have in some ways an unnatural optimism to do this work because we all know that, you know, statistics around the success of startups is not exactly, you know, not betting odds. Um, but when you have a problem area that you're so passionate about, and I think Alessandra says this really well, you know, when you're like waking up in the middle of the night or maybe not even able to sleep because you're turning this problem around and over and over and over again, there's something there that's worth 
looking into and thinking about um, because it it really takes so much of that curiosity and that passion and kind of a you know an inability to get bored by the topic because when the going gets tough that is the reserve that you draw from to remind yourself like this is why I'm here and this is why I you know perhaps didn't go to a big company with cushy benefits and you know like a an office. <laughs> I don't know how many people have offices anymore, but at, at one point in my career, that was a thing. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think in building in healthcare as someone who didn't come from either a health plan or a provider a health system. I mean, I had worked in digital health a lot. That was just one slice of the bigger healthcare industry. There is so much that you learn just by doing. And I think we I've seen generations now of people kind of coming from the tech world and saying, you know, I had this really crappy experience myself as a patient. And that often drives a lot of people to build in healthcare. And I really applaud that. And certainly I relate, we relate at Electra, but it is a space that is dominated by incumbents and you cannot show up, move fast and break things in the way that it might be possible in some other areas of consumer tech, because you're talking about patients and patient safety and data and privacy and very serious regulatory frameworks that are, you know, unfortunately way too complicated. They were written, you know, prior to the internet era and haven't necessarily been updated, but that is the world in which we live. And these incumbents cannot be ignored. And I've seen people kind of banging their head against the wall saying like, we're, we're not going to work with them. You know, we're going to avoid the health systems or avoid the payers. We're going to go direct to consumer. And that can work. But mm -hmm. if Facebook meta you know, tweaks an algorithm and your CACs go to the roof and you're like, how do I acquire patients at scale, you might find yourself starting to think about, you know, where you do fit into the existing environment. And so I just, I think it's great to come in with that passion to do something radically different. And I encourage people to have the patience to also acknowledge that there, there are people that have been in this space for a long time, trying to affect change from within. And it's not simply the newcomers or the like innovative mm -hmm, mm -hmm tech enabled folks, we have a lot to learn from each other. I think that that tension between, you know, maybe the, the tech enabled and the like grew up in the traditional healthcare industry is actually like a really good and important tension that we should have. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, that you say that in a lot of ways, I mean, healthcare, even though it's um, one of the more challenging domains to kind of enter into, it's also maybe a leading indicator of the direction that other domains could go with the sort of rise of AI, with the rise of um, data being sort of the jet fuel beneath the hood of, of AI. There's a lot of movement toward what's called like zero party data, where maybe Facebook doesn't own the data, but Janine owns the data on Janine, Scott owns the data on Scott. And I choose to permission that to somebody to monetize through the form of AI or to train models, right? So the healthcare system that has been, you know, working through HIPAA compliance and sort of for, for obviously patient protection and for making sure that pre-existing conditions or something can't be sort of you can't spill the beans and then not provide healthcare to somebody because that person deserves healthcare. It's interesting that some of these trends might bubble out of healthcare into other sectors where to your point, moving fast and break things, breaking things in the consumer space, maybe was a, a fad that won't be here forever. 
I'm curious too, you know, you talked about what keeps you up at night um, being the optimism. I think a lot of people think of, you know, what keeps you up at night as um, being the things that you're fearful of, but I love to flip (laughs) around on that, that it's actually for a lot of founders, what keeps you up at night is the sheer interest in the topic, the opportunity at hand, the pace you might want to be moving faster to to do things. Um, I think that's a really inspiring framing for that. And I'm curious, as somebody who has to juggle a ton of stuff, including, as I mentioned, uh, new twins, running a company, you know, living living in a busy city like New York City, how do you manage your time? And are there any kind of productivity hacks? What's the secret <laughs> sauce? Because I'm still looking oh to, to figure out, you know, someone has it. My, Send my it over. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, let me go back one to one thing that I I think what when you were saying people who might be interested in entering the space, you know, how might they think about this as as founders to be? And I think that the I certainly think if you go down that journey, you will likely be up at all hours of the night with a lot of fears and concerns and anxieties, and that is like a thousand percent normal and you know, there is definitely like burnout, anxiety, and depression rates are pretty high within the founding community. And I think the community is part of the antidote to that along with, you know, I have a fantastic therapist. I also have a startup coach. Like I spend a lot of time and frankly, money on trying to help me stay grounded so that, you know, I can do this work because it is very intense and the highs are high and the lows are low. And, and so I do not, I think it's great to be massively optimistic coming into it. Um, but I'm also like a realist and a pragmatist and oftentimes, you know, I'm as the ops side of things, the thing, you know, it's always going to cost twice as much and take three times as long, or, you know, maybe the inverse, but as part of the beginning, I would say like, if you're not, wrestling with something that is endlessly fascinating to you. Like I wouldn't perhaps pursue it as, um, as a founder, but, but certainly there are plenty of things that keep, you know, all of us up at night and, and I don't want to diminish that either. So to your question about how I spend my time, I mean, I wish I had a really great productivity hack. I think well, maybe a concrete one, another founder friend. So like all of my best tips come from other founders in the community. I think there's nothing like the support that you get from one another. And it's it's just a really amazing subculture of generosity for some of the people that are like really the busiest and the hardest working almost always make time to, you know, talk about a fundraise or to help you pitch or to give you feedback on an idea. And so I I do have to say that it's been a privilege um, to be part of and to hopefully contribute to that group. So anyway, a founder tip recently was something called VimCal, V-I-M-C-A-L. Maybe I'm late to the game, but rather than spending all of this time kind of manually looking for open spaces in my calendar, I just like integrate this tool and click and drag and like, voila, here's the list of times that are available and people might say, oh, but there's Calendly. And I think for whatever reason, culturally Calendly sometimes feels awkward if you're especially asking somebody else to to be generous and give you some of their time. It feels weird to be like, here's my calendar. Yeah. Um, this might not need to make it into the podcast, but anyway, that's one tool that I find pretty helpful. Um, and otherwise, I think I've just been incredibly lucky and I don't know what else to say about it. 
I have an amazing partner and he really does, if not equal, then perhaps like the lion's share of the childcare and sometimes the housework. Certainly we have, he also works at a digital health startup. So, you know, we, we each have busy times and, and when it's super busy for us both, like we call on our families or our friends um, and we have an amazing nanny. So, you know, the childcare would be a a massive piece um, to that, but uh, it's really like a privilege that we are able to deploy resources um, to do the work that we do. And it wouldn't be possible without that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too. Um, one of the things you, you said about like the depth of curiosity um, going back to, I guess, early employee or co-founder selection, even the, the sort of depth of curiosity around the topic area is something that when you when you mentioned that it resonated with me um, from giving a talk a few years ago at Fidelity, Fidelity's senior management team, including the CEO and sort of the top leadership, are all majors in subjects like history, philosophy, deeply curious people. And they um they were asking, you know, why is it that the people that stay at Fidelity for 30, 40 years join the board and run the company? are not necessarily accounting majors or business majors. They're people that sort of saw the whole picture of retirement life, life cycles and had the depth of curiosity to find this subject matter interesting for 30 or 40 years to kind of rise through the ranks and stay at the company. And I thought that was a really profound statement. And their question to, to me and to the group was, how do we sort of incentivize bringing more curious folks into the company because those are the people that we think will rise through the ranks and become leaders of the company. And so when you think about hiring, how do you select for curiosity or how do you select for passion? How did you and Alessandra maybe um, think through, you know, seeing eye to eye on, are we going to go the distance in this startup? You know, it's it's really difficult to pick a co-founder. You guys um, did it quickly and it seems like it's been great. And so love kind of any of the tricks because it's one of the hardest parts of, of startup life is picking your team, right? And, yeah. and really being equally on board with a hard journey together. Yeah. I think it's a great question. I love that fidelity anecdote. I did not know that. And of course, you know, this is the very topic of your book and I should have mentioned that earlier, but I am I am definitely a an advocate for people who study the humanities. I'm not one of those people that's like, you know, it's outmoded and we should all be doing STEM all the time. I think um, we need to have people with well-rounded passions and interests and who understand a little bit about the world that we operate in. I'll, I mean, you asked kind of two, two questions. So maybe I'll start with the founding journey for Alessandra and I, and we call it like, you know, founder dating or co-founder dating for shorthand. And Alessandra had spent time at Human Ventures, which is really a New York-based fund and incubator of fantastic companies. And I think rightly prides itself on helping to build these lasting founding teams. And so Alessandra is in some ways like an expert in that space coming into it. And we spent a lot of time certainly in conversation, but also using structured questionnaires and surveys and spent time with a founder coach who kind of had us go through exercises and then separately and together discussed where we have overlap and similarities and differences. And I don't know what the data are on this, but Alessandra and I are both people who were in the humanities. We both went 
she to China and me to India after undergrad. I think we have a lot of that innate curiosity. Um, she was in the art world. I was in, you know, government and Google. And so we weren't necessarily preordained or predestined to end up in healthcare or even women's health. But I think those are all similarities. It wasn't as though she was the business person and I was the CTO. Part of the reason for that was when we had these really honest, I think honesty is like the foundation of this. Like if you can't be, I was going to say radically honest, but I feel like that's a little overused, but if you can't be as honest as possible with this person that you're going to spend more time with than really any other person in your life, most likely don't do it. You know, if you, if you don't find the ability to be really deeply open and transparent, like don't go down that road. And I think we did. And a part of what we shared is that we wanted like psychological partners and psychological safety. And as two people who are in their thirties, who wanted to start families and did in the last, you know, four years, we wanted to have a partner that we could rely on in the event that we became parents and, and we did. And so I think that was a huge part of the conversation and it wouldn't have happened if we didn't do that really deep interrogation. And we took the time to do that, which I might not have had the instinct to do, but I think that really I credit to Alessandra and the way in which she has you know, worked with and around startups for a long time. The next piece of the question was how do we, seek out that curiosity and that desire to be in it for the long term and not only desire but the kind of grit and dedication that comes with it and i'll say that in building electra we've tapped into something that draws really talented people to us and moreover they are the folks that are so motivated that they will say, you know, I've, I've spent time looking at, you know, we put a lot of content out into the world. And so if someone hasn't been to our website and doesn't have a suggestion for what they could improve, you know, even if that's like a copy error, um, if they haven't taken the time to understand a little bit about what we do and how we're positioned and who else is in the space, I think it's a, you know, a, a kind of clear flag just because there are a lot of people who were in a fairly unique area where there aren't a ton of spaces like this digital health meets menopause and women's health. So the curiosity is often what leads the conversation um, when candidates come to us. It's such a, such a good point. So I, I often refer to a quote that's uh, attributed to Voltaire. I don't know if he actually said it or not, but judge a person by their questions, not by their answers. And in a world oh, of like people- that where we can always find the answers, what's more kind of informative is, do you have any questions for me? That end of the interview where you say, do you have any more questions for me? And if the person shrugs and says, no, it doesn't intimate a deep sense of curiosity or that fervor, that drive. That's actually one of the key points of the interview probably is absolutely, yes, I do have questions. Here they are. So thanks for yeah, sharing. And, and I find, I don't know about you, but I find that like a 30 minute interview goes so fast. And if you leave the questions to the end, you might not get there. And so sometimes I try to move that part of the agenda up or find a way to tap into what is driving them and what are they really interested in? And is there, is this make sense to continue the dialogue around a little bit earlier in the discussion? Mm-hmm. Amazing. And so for those that uh, want to find you after this um, episode, where can they find uh, Janine online? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Electra Health, Electra is spelled with a K. 
you can go to the fund website. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, all the usual places. And my email is just Janine at electrahealth.com. I have three N's in my name, but again, if you're a sort of curious, intrepid person, I'm sure you will find that and find a way to send me a note. No problem. Well, Janine, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and um, look forward to seeing you in New York. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being such an instrumental part of our founding journey. We wouldn't be here without you guys. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn about Everywhere. We're a first check pre-seed fund that does exactly that. We invest everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.